just talk to us a little bit about your thought process uh, about deciding to do a sermon series on this. Yeah, providentially, we were in John, and particularly in John 14 to 16, and then especially the weeks as it was happening at Asbury when it first started. We were in John 16, 1 to 12, particularly 7 to 12, which talks about the Spirit coming into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to guide the apostles into all truth. And so as, as I'm working through those texts and thinking about the work of the Spirit, then I hear these reports of the Spirit working in a unique way, and I'm, obviously then my interest was very piqued of, does this match? Does this match John 16? Um, and then uh, on top of that, I just was inundated with stuff on my social media feeds, uh, just constant reporting from different people that I follow. Um, and so that obviously was another source of information that got my interest going. But then I started having people talk to me, and particularly my son at Cedarville uh, called, and I think I mentioned this in a sermon or two. And he was seeing some things on campus at Cedarville that he wasn't sure what was going on and how to think about it. So he called and just said, hey, what's, what's a biblical view of revival was essentially what he asked me, which is a great question. And we had a wonderful conversation. Um, but that just got me thinking, certainly if he's asking, others are. Then I just brought it to the elders. I said, hey, what do you guys, are you hearing this? And what do you think? And several of the men said, yeah, we're having similar conversations. And so I just threw out the idea of, hey, let's take a pause from John I don't know, four or five weeks, whatever, see what happens. And they were all very much in favor of that. So I think you were part of those conversations. Yes, I was. I was. I I just remember after (laughs) after we had that conversation, I got on the phone and called Lewis and said, so what's going on there? (laughs) Yeah. So there you go. Yep. Okay, next thing. After I get done teaching something, I'm like, uh, it seems counterintuitive. You've studied a lot. You've taken in a lot more. It seems like you would be more verbose and how you talk about something, and it actually seems to work the opposite. You become clearer and clearer and can be more concise. So just to kind of set the stage for the rest of the discussion, give us a little jumping off point. Um, Could you just put your thoughts, you've been through all this material, you've probably studied, I mean, I just rough calculation, five sermons, at least 50 hours, that's a lot of time. Uh, Can you condense that down to kind of the essence of what you've said, what you've taught, maybe kind of in a nutshell, maybe like a thesis statement or, you know, just the essence of what you've taught and concluded. Well, I should be a lot smarter for 50 plus hours of study. <laughs> that's the first conclusion. But, um, yeah, it, that's a great question. And you, you should get more clear the more you understand something and be able to explain it better. I think the, the biggest thing for me that was helpful in the study relating to clarity was understanding that revival is not some new work of God's Spirit in a, in a way that is unusual or unexpected, but it's an extra measure of how he's always at work. Mm-hmm. And that was very helpful to me to see and understand that in Acts, in uh, church history, this is what the Spirit was sent to do, and at times he does that in, in a massive way and an extraordinary way. Um, and it's all under the sovereign providence of the Lord of the church, of Jesus. And it, it's by his interceding with the Father and the work of the Spirit in mysterious ways we don't understand that he chooses when and how to do that, or, or when and where to do that. Um, but essentially, what we tried to do in the, in the series, and I hope uh, came across, was just help us understand when do we need revival uh, in the church and do 
kind of the point of that question is, do we need revival? That was the, the point there. And so those five churches that were addressed and confronted by Christ, are we cold? Are we <clears throat> compromised? Are we complacent? Are we self-confident? Are we Christless? Mm. Uh, and then from there, if we are, how do we seek revival? Should we seek revival? Or should we just sit back and say, okay, Lord, zap us. We need revived, you know? Uh, and the clear pattern of Scripture is, no, we need the word of the Lord prayerfully, humbly received by God's people and by his grace moving us forward in the faith and in, in maturity and in growth. Um, and then the, the results of that, I think, was another thing that really stuck out to me and I wanted to really impact our church with that reality because if you're assessing a revival, one of the things you have to assess is what did it produce? What is it claiming as its offspring? And biblically speaking, it's always an addition to the church. It's, it's always a, a renewed spiritual life as seen in renewed fellowship and commitment to the word and devotion to prayer and sacrificial love expressed in the body. And it's seen in their ability and, and power in witnessing to the world and, and a greater increase of results. And so if that's not happening or if that's not even the focus of the revival, then is it revival? Mm. It, it's not fitting. So that wasn't concise. Hopefully it was clear, but that, that's my <laughs> overview. That was perfect. Perfectly concise. Um, it was five sermons. You just did that in like, you know, a few minutes. And then everybody's, well, why can't you do that every week, right? No. This is why he's my friend, because he helps me. Yeah, don't, don't say that. Okay, uh, next question. Uh, kind of interesting. You, so you went from two passages out of the New Testament, uh, Acts, uh, narrative, and the letters in Revelation. And... Um, they kind of involve different subjects. In one case, you have unbelievers who repent in response to the preaching of the apostles. And in the other case, you have believers in established churches who have some spiritual issues. So uh, a series of questions here. Do you see it as different kinds of revival producing different kinds of fruit? Should revival be categorized or should it not be categorized uh, what do you see as the difference between the revival of an unbeliever and the revival of a believer who has become spiritually unresponsive? So yeah. dive in there. Great question. Um, and I think this has probably been one of the most confusing aspects of the study for me, has been trying to, to dissect the finer points here of, of what's, what is revival related to the church and what is a spiritual awakening related to spiritually dead people in society. And maybe there's a terminology thing that we, we could do better using that, but in essence, we have to, in some ways, work with the language we're, we're given. You know, the economy of words that we have in our current context, revival is a thing, and we need to talk about it and then give it biblical truth, you know, fill it okay. with what the word says about it. So you could ask the question a different way. You could say, is, is what happened in Acts really revival? Right, I and mean, that's kind of what you asked. Right. Is that really a revival? Yeah. Um, or is Jesus in Revelation two and three? Is is he calling the church to be revived? Um, I would say, from the second question, is Jesus calling the church to be revived? Yes. And I, I would go back to Psalm eighty five, and that's the heart they should have in hearing the words of Christ that we talked about this morning. <clears throat> in the book of Acts, I I don't know how to answer that question. I I think it's obviously an outpouring of God's Spirit that produced mass conversion and they added to the church. And so it, 
what really helps me here is that you see that then happen in church history. That, that's the same pattern that's followed, and it's always around God works through the church and then builds the church through the revival. Um, so it's not, it's not mass meetings in an a arena where 80,000 people come and, and hear the gospel, and then you have no idea what happens after that. that that's not revival, biblically speaking, nor in church history speaking. So what I saw in Acts, then you see in church history, that is an outpouring of the Spirit known as revival. So I just went with the language, and, and it is confusing yeah. uh, in some ways. So I would say that however you parse that out, and, and there is need for further uh, distinctions, however you parse that out, the means are the same. So if you're, if you're talking about an unbeliever needing to be awakened or a church needing to be renewed in their spiritual life, the means are the same. It's the power of the Spirit of God coming upon them through the word proclaimed. Um, And I would say in culture, the only hope the culture has for true spiritual awakening is the church. She's been entrusted as the pillar and buttress of the truth. She is the the minister of reconciliation, to use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. So their, their hope is... Only us. God sent us to be reconciling them through the proclamation of the power of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, So, and then it will produce an addition to the church. So, yeah, there's distinction there, but you can't separate them either. Does that make sense? You have a follow up? I think that does. I know um, almost does seem in some ways like you could almost use a a second word because while the church would produce uh, revival within the culture, they sometimes need to be revived themselves. Yeah. And then technically, it's just the word, did you touch on that? Revival, it means there was life there at one point. Right. Well, within the culture, you're looking at yeah. no life. So that, and that's the dilemma yeah. 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 In, in the terminology. Right. Okay. No, that's helpful. Okay. Um, how about this? This is an interesting thought. Uh, could you talk a bit about the correlation between true, true revival and persecution? Is there a relationship there? If so, what is it? Does one always follow the other? And this person says, you know, I'm thinking of the persecution that broke out in Acts, as well as the authenticity and growth of believers in persecuted countries today. Mm -hmm. I was thinking through that passage in Acts. You start out with uh, revival, the apostles preaching and teaching. That leads to the dispersion from Jerusalem, which then results in Revival. I'm thinking particularly of Antioch, right. off the top of my head, the Greeks coming to Christ. Right. It's kind of like those things seem to have some relationship. Yeah. How do you put that together? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you kind of answered the question by carrying out the timeline in Acts. And as you see the gospel penetrate into the darkness of the world, uh, there's, there's light shed abroad and, and wonderful things happen. Like in Ephesus, um, the... The idol makers are so upset because they're losing money and about to go out of business. And so they raise up this riot and, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians because they're so mad about it. Well, that's because the gospel had made such impact in their town. And you see that in revivals, true revivals. There, there is an impact culturally where, you know, you hear of in the, great, uh, the second great awakening of uh, bars shutting down and uh, in the Welsh revival of the early 1900s, the, the police not having anything to do at night because the criminals were off the streets because they had been impacted by the gospel. Wow. So, I mean, there's, there's tremendous positives that come in culture, uh, but anytime 
God does a work like that, you can guarantee the enemy of our soul and the enemy of our Lord is going to come after the church. And that's what you see in Acts. It, you know, it took yeah. a little while, but then they were all over him in, in Acts 4 and 5. Um, and then in other places, you know, the, the Jews in other towns then came against him again. So if you love the world, the world will love you in return and you will hate God. You'll be at enmity with God. And that's, that's a big part of the problem in broader church life. Uh, and, and we struggle with that here, individually and corporately. But in, in broader American Christianity, we've tried to play nice with the world. We, we want to have both things. We want to say we love God and love the world. We want to appease the world while still trying to serve and honor the Lord. And that's not going to draw flack from the world. They're going to applaud that, you know. But when you start, when revival comes and, and God grabs your attention and says, you're not fearing me, you're not humbly obeying me, and, and you start pursuing the truth of God in, in obedience and you start speaking truth to the culture in relationships and, yeah. and on a broad scale as a church, they don't like that. And they're going to come response. After, exactly. Yeah. They'll come after you. Um, so you're going to have both and. Uh, on an interesting side note, in the seven churches in Asia Minor that that Christ addressed, you know, five had negative things said to them, two did not, Smyrna and Philadelphia, meaning they were doing well spiritually. I mean, that's the obvious assumption, right, that things are going well there. He commends them and tells them to remain, be faithful, carry through. They're both under severe persecution in both of those places. You read the letter, he talks about the severe persecution and opposition they're facing. Yeah. And so there is a connection, and you can trace this in, in church history too, but there's a connection between opposition from the world and a seriousness of faith in the body. It's a sifting, purifying effect uh, for the church, and that's a good thing, and it produces more persecution. You know, as, as we get stronger, then more persecution tends to come, which we're seeing in nations like North Korea and China and Laos and other places in Africa that people are coming after Christians, so... So the answer is basically yes, persecution will yes. produce revival, revival can produce persecution. Yeah, I don't know that I would say it always happens, right. but for yeah. sure it's... Good check. Yeah. <laughs> Connection there. Um, how about this thought? Someone's like, you know, somewhat bothered by the conservative camp's response, kind of a little bit arrogant, maybe a little dismissive, maybe a little bit of a negative reaction to the Asbury revival. Um, how should we handle something like this how should we relate to people who we disagree with on this? I mean, we, we probably see that revival in Asbury is not exactly, um, not, not like what, not, not, I don't want to use the word not genuine, but not genuine. Um, is there anything we can be encouraging about when, you know, someone's all excited about uh, this Asbury revival? How can we be discerning without at the same time seeming angry or arrogant? That was a lot of questions. Bro. That was a lot of questions. <laughs> I'll help you. Go as far as you can, okay. and I'll pick you up. Um, yeah, I, I saw some of that uh, vitriol and I would say maybe arrogance in conservative evangelicalism and, and particularly in the Reformed camp. Uh, and I understand it because... It, I don't say it's right, but I understand. Like when you are enlightened about something and you understand the yeah. truth on something, it becomes hard to be patient with people who are still in process or who are in error. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's easy to get upset about that. 
and, and prideful, frankly. Uh, and really, it should be the opposite. Truth should humble us. The, the fact that God's graciously taught us something should drive us to worship him and humbly pursue how to use that knowledge for his glory. Um, but it's easy when you discern something to be an error to become angry and unhelpful. That's why, I mean, that's what Paul says to, to Timothy. That's why he says this to Timothy. You know, he's calling him to uphold the truth in two letters. And in his second letter, he, he's, he's basically telling him in both letters to, to fight the good fight of the faith and, and lays himself out as an example and gives them all the tools to do it. You know, here's the order of the church, what it's supposed to look like in his first letter. You know, here's how you're supposed to operate in the church. And, hey, by the way, in the last days, there's going to be a whole bunch of really bad things. People are going to fall away. They're going to look for teachers that uh, scratch their itching ears, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and then he says this to him in the middle of his second letter, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Um, that is the paradigm, yeah. biblically speaking, of how, we are, how we're to respond to error. Um, social media has given us an instant outlet for our hot takes, which are usually not helpful, frankly, being quick to speak is usually not a good thing. And social media gives you a way to be quick to speak about something and, and voice your opinion. And, and I follow pastors on Twitter that they seem to have to have an opinion on everything. I'm like, what do you do with your life? And, and why do I follow you? I don't know, but I do anyway. But most of that is not helpful. It, it, you need time to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to hear. Um, I think we tend to think, and this is why James has to tell us this in James 1, to not think that the anger of man can produce the righteousness of God. And, and we tend to think, well, if I just yell at them loud enough, they'll change. Yeah. And that's not what Paul says to Timothy. Be gentle, be kind, be patient, endure, and for the sake of their soul. And I think that's what got lost or tends to get lost in a discernment conversation is that I'm not just dealing with winning the argument over truth. That needs to happen. We need to stand for truth. Right. But I'm dealing with eternal souls. These people who are in error are ensnared by the devil. And if it ends that way, they're going to be forever with the devil in hell. And that sobers the situation and makes me a lot more, should make me a lot more patient and kind, but firm. I'll also say it's hard when um, there should be a level of righteous anger involved here. And so the Spirit of God, uh, in my opinion, biblically informed opinion, I'm not the Lord, right? I don't see this perfectly. But what I saw, what I heard, just sifting that through Scripture, there's a lot of blasphemy of the Spirit of God happening at the Asbury Revival, in my opinion. Wow. A lot of things done in his name, a lot of things attributed to him that he had nothing to do with. If we're walking with the Lord and we love our Lord and we care about his church and we love his truth and we love what his spirit does in the church, that ought rightly anger us in the sense of we should not want to put up with that for long. We should want that to not be okay or, or uh, untouched. And that's 
you know, kind of the opposite side of this was that there was a lot of people on the other side who basically said, if you question the Asbury revival at all, you're a judgmental jerk. <laughs> well, that's not right either. You need to be able to exercise discernment, right. biblically speaking, and honor the Lord in how you confront others. So, yeah. Uh, no, I love that. Uh, that is Second Timothy 2. Three, 2. I was going to say, yeah. 24 two. to 26. That is, that is an outstanding cross-reference. And then to uh, James, quick to speak. So quick to listen. Yeah, <laughs> quick to speak. <laughs> That's you tonight. You be quick to speak. Yeah. Uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Very good. Yeah, I remember and, and on that uh, social media thing, I, just, I still remember the first email I sent without thinking enough. <laughs> and I, I just slowed everything down after that. You just think, oh, those are real words going to a real person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, time, I, there's time to use some care. There's something about the digital platform yeah. that tempts you to be thoughtless and and quick and reactionary. Yeah. And like you, I mean, I, I've had to learn the hard way to sit on an email. Uh, and so generally, if I write an email that is uh, hard, I don't send it. I write it and I leave it as a draft. And then I'll come back to it the next day or the next week and read it again. I'm like, yeah, that didn't sound good. I'm glad I didn't send it and reword it as you've cooled down. Uh, this also, and I don't know, this doesn't, it has nothing to do with your question, but I have wrestled with how do you engage in social media in a Christ-honoring, helpful way? So I've had people outside of our church family tell me that as a pastor, I should be, you know, prolific on social media because it's a way for influence for, for the for Christ and for his church. And I get that. I, I see possibilities there. But I also just see so much danger for the flesh. And, and I frankly am just not strong enough in my flesh to resist the, the self-platforming and self-exaltation, you know, the, becoming the guru on social media of yeah. the latest, hottest take. And, and, and then all the pitfalls of, well, what, what if your initial take is wrong? Like, what if more information comes out later and you're just dead wrong on something? How do you work that back on Twitter? I mean, it doesn't work that way. So I just have struggled to know how to engage social media. So when you figure that out, let me know. I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> I, uh, you know, here's the, the um, oh, how do I say this? I am not, I, I don't engage much in social media at all. Somehow it just does not capture me. I know other people it does. I'm thinking the Apostle Paul, that guy was so connected. I mean, you get to uh, Romans. 16, and he mentions, you know, 30 plus people. For he's century Facebook right there. Yeah, for, he's, <laughs> he's never been to Rome, never been to this church, and yet seems like he would know a good chunk of people there, thinking that guy would be so connected. I want to know how would he deal with the accessibility that Facebook, Twitter, those kinds of things would give you? How would he handle that? Uh, I wouldn't wait for my answer on how to solve that. No. <laughs> but, and it, now that we're on the topic and shouldn't be but that's all right and what's hard about this too is that it's just not real life and there's elements of it that are real life and, and are can be helpful and I've been very encouraged by several things of, that I've seen on Facebook and Twitter hmm. those are frankly the exception usually and, and we should just really be busy about real life stuff and, and that should be pushed to the margins of our life and really frankly not have much influence on us so i don't know there there's ways to use it well i don't always know what they are anyways i've derailed us i'm sorry no you're good <laughs>
I, uh, it's just, this is a real, this, this conversation is real, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <Not> digital. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, how about, um, let's see. If now that we've talked about uh, how to how, how should we uh, uh, yeah, speak carefully and yet firmly on this, how about some candid thoughts on the revival at <laughs> Asbury and Cedarville? Have any? It feels like a temptation to sin. Yes, is it is. Okay. I'm dangling the carrot. No, so there you <laughs> um, I well, I'll, I'll speak candidly about my initial reactions. Uh, initially, what I saw and heard and um, the reports coming out of Asbury, my, my initial response was, uh, I hope a godly skepticism rooted in what I know they teach at that place. I, I know the theology of Asbury enough to know that they've primed the pump for decisionism, for uh, emotionally driven connections to God that, aren't biblical. Um, I know they have things going on on their campus that don't honor the Lord, uh, particularly with the LGBTQ situation. And, and they've taken positions as an institution that don't honor the Lord. So I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like immediately, if, if this is God's spirit, he's going to press on that. <laughs> you know, this is a key way they need to repent. I haven't heard of them repenting of any of that. So, so I initially had, I hope, some... Um, discerning skepticism, and I fought the skeptical heart, and I had to work through that, uh, and I actually had followed some, I, I listened to some podcasts that were really helpful in how they approached it of, listen, we, we hope there is something really happening here from the Lord, but here's things we're seeing that are concerning. Yeah. That was helpful for me. That was a good corrective to, yeah, you know what? At, Pastor Bob's dad got saved at a Pentecostal healing service. Remember that story? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, God can use, and yeah. frankly has to use faulty means, you know, faulty men who do faulty things at times yeah. to propagate the gospel. So I, I do hope and um, I do pray that there is some, some actual good of the Spirit of God that happened even in what I think to be a flawed approach to revival, a, a flawed um, even result of revival. Uh, and I think time and truth, as I've said before, time and truth go hand in hand. And, and so you see the outcome of that stuff. And, and if it's really true revival, it's going to prove itself by what it puts out. Uh, <clears throat> I do think that social media and the media attention created something that couldn't be put down. So uh, Ian Murray in his book on revival talks about not, not giving too much attention to wildfires but looking for true fires of revival. And I think a lot of attention, particularly in the media and in, you know, Big Eva, went to a wildfire. And it, it maybe got out of control, I don't know. But then once you give it attention, uh, kind of the story becomes then, well, how long is this going to go? Well, if you're a student at Asbury and you're watching that on Fox News, you're like, well, we're going to keep this thing going all the time we can so we can keep Fox News trucks on campus, right? Yeah. That's giving us good publicity. Uh, so that's a... a problematic dynamic. Um, as it went to Cedarville, uh, you know, the reason Zach called me was because he was hearing things from leadership that sounded to him like trying to manipulate the situation, 
to bring revival to Cedarville. Um, and I think that it was a good caution from him. Uh, I don't think that was, as I listened then, I went back and listened to what I could, and I don't think that was in the heart of the people that were talking at Cedarville. I think they just really wanted and longed for God to do a work in their student body. Um, I think there is some revivalism tendencies, the, the Finneyism that we talked about in Sermon 3, uh, that kind of still show themselves at Cedarville. There's some of that there, um, which is prominent in a lot of churches, but I think there's, there's problematic realities there. But the takeaway, at least for Zach, has been that there's a, a heightened sense of, of spiritual desire on Cedarville's mm-hmm. campus. And he's like, everybody is just a little more concerned about honoring the Lord with their lives and, and talking about spiritual things. So he's like, that's a good thing. Like, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You know, whatever the other stuff that that's great. So, and they send out teams to. I don't know if you knew this from Lewis. That's what I heard about. Yeah, the teams. they send out teams to go do evangelism on, you know, Ohio State's campus and uh, Michigan State or Michigan, Michigan State. I think after they had that shooting, mm-hmm. they sent a team up there, and that's tremendous. And you know, that's obviously God's spirit pressing on God's people to be ambassadors. That's wonderful. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, I think this question came probably before today's sermon, so this might be a little bit of a reprise in terms of answer. And it's only three questions. So <laughs> here you go. Should we pray for revival? How should we pray for revival? And what are we praying for when we pray for revival? Absolutely, we should, we should pray for God to do a work like this. Um, personally, we should pray in those areas where we know our hearts have become or cold or complacent. Uh, I think you have a question with this later, so I don't mean to steal the thunder from that question, but for me personally, like where the Lord gripped me this week uh, in, in relationship to that question of how to pray was my own prayer life had become uh, cold and clinical. And this was, this series, and particularly Psalm 85, gripped me with, the mercy of God, just remembering the kindness of God to forgive my sins. And that I want to pray to a God like that. So if, if I'm cold in my desire to seek the Lord in prayer, that's not his fault. He's always worthy of seeking. That, there's something wrong with me. Right. So my prayer personally for revived, a revived spiritual life is, God, don't ever let me forget your mercy and remind me often of the joys of praying to you and and then following that up with practice you're not going back to my foolish ways of of uh not taking the time or or making excuses for why i don't have the time to give focused attention to prayer um so that's that's just an ongoing work and and the prayer there for me is that i keep pursuing that and and, you know whatever that is that issue is for each of us individually that's the prayer lord because it it's dependent on mercy i can't make myself a by my own power, a prayerful person in a way that honors the Lord. I need grace to do that. That's, a, that's grace training me. So I should pray because that's how we get more grace. We pray. We humble ourselves. Um, corporately, I think we should, we should plead with the Lord to, I think we as elders need to ask the Lord and, and we as a church need to ask the Lord, where are we on those five things we saw in Revelation 2 and 3? Are we cold, complacent? self-confident, compromised, 
um, on down the list and, and where we are, make those matters of prayer as well. But then I also think it's right to pray and ask the Lord to use us. And, and I, I probably sound like a, a broken record, but every time I pray congregationally, I pray some form of make us to be a light in a dark world and use us to win the lost. Because that, that's why we're here as the church is to be a beacon of hope and of salvation for the forgiveness of sins to a lost world. And there's lost sheep out there who need to be found. And God's going to use us to do that. I mean, he said that to, to Paul when he was in Ephesus. Stay here because, you know, don't be discouraged by the opposition. I still have many people in this city who are mine. Well, he had to stay and preach the gospel so they could be found, right? That's our role. And, and so we should pray that God helps us be faithful and be fervent and have open doors and be courageous and be clear with the gospel. Colossians 4, 1 to Three, I think, or three to four. Paul pray, he tells us how to pray for him in witnessing. And essentially, it's courage and clarity that I would know what to say and that I would be courageous to say it. But we should pray for one another that way and, and then wait and, and <clears throat> beg of God to bring the results of many coming to faith. Just uh, a recap there. I just, uh, at least for myself personally, there's always sort of an ebb and flow in my spiritual life, I get really on top of my Bible reading and my devotional life is strong and then something happens and I get my eye off the mark and all of a sudden I wake up one day and I'm a week behind on my Bible reading or, you know, those kinds of things. I haven't been praying as much and I'm like, I was listening to the sermon this morning and thinking, if I followed that, pardon me, recipe, not, <laughs> not, not a preferred word by you, I know, um, could I avoid that ebb and flow? Could you speak to that a little bit? Or is that just life? And that's how we're going to be. We're, 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 we're not automatons. We're not machines. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of how it's going to be. This is why it's the call of Hebrews to persevere in the life of faith. And the answer is always to look to Jesus and consider him. And, and to not, I mean, the reason that you're told in Hebrews 4 to not, let your heart grow cold uh, and, and stop listening to the word is because we are prone to let our hearts grow cold and stop listening to the word. Um, so have sensitive ears to the word. Um, I think there's some, there's some key ways in which you can, you can stop the dramatic ups and downs. Uh, and I, I think early on in... in your growth as a Christian, those are more pronounced. As you get further along in your maturity, those are, are less, uh, less drastic and less problematic, but they're still there. Um, and I think what helps there is just the, the patterns you establish, the rhythms of, of the habits of grace. The, you know, God's grace flows to us in, in prescribed ways. God doesn't just zap us with grace and say, well, here, I'm going to make you more mature. He gives us ways to pursue maturity, and it's all of him. It's him powerfully working in us, but it's us also working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he gives us ways to do that. So if, if we're pursuing those ways, though our, our spiritual life and our, our spiritual man ebb and flow a little bit, uh, just like your physical man, sometimes you're a little more sick than others. Uh, but if you take care of things and you eat the right thing and get the exercise, and you know, generally you have decent health. So that's, a, I think, a similar thing with, with your spiritual man. 
Excellent, excellent. Okay, um, how about this? You referenced six pages of notes this morning on guarding the truth in the New Testament. I was like, yeah, let's hear about that. <laughs> so this morning, not going to happen. Now's the time. So uh, give us a little insight. What are these six pages of notes on guarding the truth in the New Testament? Any specific observation there that particularly impressed you? Uh, what, what, what impelled you to that study? Because it does seem a little maybe ancillary to the topic of revival. Yeah. Yeah, so the backstory on that, and I, this is one of the things about preaching. Like, I, I frankly wish I wouldn't have said that. It was, it was on the fly. And as soon as I said it, I thought, why did you say that? What? Because I'm going to ask you about it tonight. <laughs> you got something to share. I mean, honestly, the, the struggle for me was, did I say that in a self-exalting way? I mean, I immediately, the Spirit checked me. So. No, I was thinking you should have done 12 pages. But, <laughs> so you're good. What's wrong with you? Yeah, right? what's, uh, but, you know, what, of your meager study, you know, what did you find? <laughs> this is why I wish I wouldn't have said it. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this because your seat's becoming warmer and mine's getting cooler. Um, the backstory in that was that up till 3 p.m. on Friday, I was going a different direction for Sunday morning. And I, I was going to go back to Revelation 2 and 3. I was going to ask those questions that I kind of led with this morning of, of evaluation. Are you cold? And then I gave a bunch of other questions to kind of flesh that out. And are you compromised? And I fleshed it out. So what I did in two days worth of work on study was to work through those questions and then, and then answer them biblically, um, assessing them and then prescribing the cure. And that's kind of where I was going to go. Uh, and so the, the six pages of notes were all five of those churches and, and all five of those spiritual decline. So two of the pages were on, uh, are, we, are we compromised or, or, or complacent? Are we not caring about the truth and, and guarding the truth in the church? Um, so at, what happened on Friday was, and I wish, you know, this is one of the, the banes of study is like, why did you not think of this earlier? But and I knew Psalm 85 was there. I've, I've taught on it before. I, I knew what it said. But it just didn't connect with me until after lunch on Friday. I'm like, Matt, what are you doing? Because I, I frankly do not like doing topical sermons. They're a pain in the rear. I have no idea where I'm going. I, I, it's, I don't like it at all. And I feel like it's prone, I'm prone to say things that I can't then prove expositionally. So they're a lot more work. I'd much rather park in a text and just say, hey, yeah. let's open this text and just lay it, lay it plain. And so then when I was like, oh, I can do that with Psalm 85 and make all the points I was going to make from Revelation 2 and 3, I'm like, okay. So I wrestled with the Lord for about an hour, and then I, okay, let's do it. So not that it was his fault. I'm just saying, what was the best thing? Um, to your question on complacency, what stuck out to me, and I kind of mentioned this this morning, but I just started leafing through the New Testament, and I went to texts I knew talked about guarding the truth and uh, fighting against false teachers and yeah. taking a stand. I was blown away. I mean, so I'm writing the the reference I find and a summary statement of it. I was writing, writing, and I'm just two pages later. You know, it's just a mass of verses wow. relating to this topic. And what stuck out to me was that it the New Testament's expectation. So God's expectation for the church is that the church will be zealous to guard the truth. Not just the elders. The elders, obviously. But the church family has to be zealous to guard the truth. They cannot be complacent. 
And, and he saw that in Jesus' words to the church uh, in Thyatira. You're complacent. Yeah. You're, you're letting this happen. So uh, that was what was overwhelming to me uh, about that. And then the, um, the, the clarity of those calls to how you deal with it. it some, they're very severe. So, you know, there's gentleness, kindness, and love, but there's a point in which severity must come to uphold the truth. And every book has, almost every book in the New Testament has a statement about severity relating to false teachers in the church because they need to be shut down. They need to be silenced, as Paul says to Titus. Those are the the things I took away. Well, we're winding down, so here you go. Uh, Did you end up where you started? How have your thoughts changed on the subject of revival? Uh, have, they, have, have they developed? Do you have a new perspective or just a deeper one, maybe in the same direction? Yeah, I, I don't think I've changed tracks. I think the the train went further down the same tracks. Um, I had done quite a bit of study on, on revival. Uh, I went to a seminary where uh, it started in the midst of the Billy Graham crusade fiasco relating to fundamentalism. So I heard a lot about that situation in my classroom days. And there was a lot related to that then connected to revivalism and and Finney. And so I I knew a lot of that already. Um, In recent years, I've come across some authors that have really helped me understand related to church history and acts, how this has played itself out and and particularly the, the greater work of the same work. The, the greater measure of the same work of the Spirit is revival. That's been clarified for me as I've gotten further along. So, yeah, I, I think it's the same track, just further down. Okay. All right. Um, how would you like this to impact the church? Simple question. How would you like this church to be different, having gone through this series, thought about it, heard yeah. the messages? Yeah, I think um, you've preached before, so you'll resonate with this and they get to listen in and maybe resonate a little bit but I think one of the hardest aspects of of public proclamation of the word is what happened what, what was the result of that investment in in God's people with God's truth um, and long ago I had to wrestle with almost every time you proclaim the word there's not going to be a visible, immediate, obvious uh, extension of, of growth and of grace. But like with our food, when we eat consistently and eat well, our physical man grows and matures and is healthy. And I've been here long enough to see God mercifully use his word to grow our church in a healthy way. And that's been encouraging to um, and that's that's frankly what a lot of the Christian life is, right? It, it's not these, uh, you know, just plug along and then all of a sudden you'll get these spiritual highs that will take you to this higher plane and then that's really Christianity. So try to stay there, but you'll probably come back down at some point and then look for another experience to take you back up. No, it's, biblically speaking, it, it's a, a steady slog in the same direction upward of maturity. Um, and so... Uh, it's, it's been an encouragement to me to know that God has more patience than me and works in ways far beyond I could, than what I see or could comprehend through the preaching of the word as it's faithfully and 
uh, hopefully clearly given out to God's people. So it's a hard question to answer because, yeah. yeah, I mean, I hope that God, through an understanding of revival, helps us guard our hearts from false revival uh, or from linking his work to some kind of decisionism or emotionalism. I hope he keeps us from that. Uh, I also pray and have prayed that that God would do his work to to make us examine ourselves. And, and that's a biblical thought. Um, there's good checkpoints in the Christian life. Uh, the, the Lord's table is a good checkpoint. Second, or 1 Corinthians 11 makes that really clear. Examine yourselves before you come to the table so you don't drink damnation into your, into your soul. Uh, so there's, there's built-in checks for you because God knows you're prone to wander. And I hope this sermon series was a checkpoint for us to evaluate and examine and, and where wrong to do business with the Lord. So um, I think I had other thoughts, but those are the ones that come no, to mind. That I, I, I got to, you can dive back in, but you, you kind of reference, there, there's a book title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, yeah. Description of the Christian Life, yeah. much better than as, as you would, you know, it's not a, uh, we tend to want to look for the dramatic lightning bolt moments. Yeah. But what we need to do is get up every day and be faithful. And for me, I'll, I'll just say what impacted me, today's message was probably the most uh, moving for me just to see uh, what I must do to make sure I do not fall into those complacent ways. Psalm 85 was really, really encouraging. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's a long obedience in the same direction type answer mm -hmm. back. It's like, no, I'm, I'm not walking on a different plane now. I'm going to think a little bit differently going forward. I need to press into keeping myself revived, not just assume it's all going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that's... The methods for doing that. Go ahead. No, sorry. And that's okay. That, that, that's biblically expected. So we, we ought not feel bad uh, when we don't have the the hot experience of what we see on the news media of happening in some other place. And, and I think we can, there's so much made of that. It becomes a, a darling uh, experience. It becomes uh, the, the desired and craved for spiritual high that everybody wants. And, and I think it, I want our church to know it's actually biblical to be normal and steady and faithful and that's actually what the Lord rewards is consistent faithfulness for over a lifetime, whatever, that, whatever length that is, as he grows us. And there will be spurts of growth, just like in the human body, but there's steady growth. That's what's to be expected. And that's harder yeah. than the other model, which doesn't actually produce spiritual growth, but the other model is, is easier. Just try to drum up good feelings and, and then you feel like you've arrived or you're freed from oppression or whatever. This is harder, but it's way more rewarding, I think. Just a couple more quick questions. Uh, if someone wanted to read further, have you got uh, reading material in mind or something that they could follow up with? I, I, I did a little search. You'll be intrigued. I'm, I, I found uh, how to promote and conduct a successful revival. <laughs> is that Probably not that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> so help us out a little. I haven't read it, but <laughs> guessing by the title, probably not. Uh, the most helpful book, so if you want to do, you know, kind of a, 
in-depth read, and it's not a long book, um, you'll have to think when you read it, is Ian Murray's book, and the title is Pentecost slash today question mark. So Pentecost today question mark. And he's answering the question is, can, does God do what he did in Acts 2 today and throughout church history? And he answers all of the, the aberrations, the, the errors of Finney. Uh, and it's tremendous. It's so helpful. I've read it twice, and it's so good. Um, so that would be a book to pick up. You can't buy it from Amazon. They're all sold out. They're, I, I don't know if it's out of print. I don't know what's going on, but you can borrow my copy if you want or look for it on, on Abe Books uh, or uh, Thrift Books or whatever. Um, he's got a, so Murray has a bigger one that's actually like the go-to for seminary classrooms. It's called Revival and Revivalism. Uh, and I have not read that. I, I've tried to get my hands on it several times and that also is out of print. Uh, so I will read that at some point. But that's more, that's a thicker, it's a 400 page book that gives the history of revivalism and revival throughout church history. Okay. Frankly, anything you can read by Murray is going to be yeah. very helpful to you in this conversation. Uh, also, I was helped by Martin Lloyd-Jones's sermon series on revival. Hmm. Um, I didn't listen to it all again. I've listened to it all in the past, but as we were going through this sermon series, I, I caught bits and pieces, and particularly the first couple sermons. So you can just go on to, uh, I think it's the Lloyd-Jones Trust. Uh, I can get you the, um, you can probably just search it. Look, search for Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, and you'll come across mljtrust.com is what it is, or .org. Anyways, and search for revival, and there's a 20 three-part series on revival that's really helpful. Um, and then, if you don't want to do all that work, which I understand, uh, there is a couple of um, blog articles on g3ministries.org, the g3min.org, uh, that has, that just type in Asbury, and a couple of articles will pop up that were very helpful, very biblical, very balanced, uh, and very, very uh, encouraging and direct, but very good. So those were very helpful to me. Also, if you want more information on the Asbury stuff, and I haven't kept up like with it in the last week or so, but a couple of conversations on podcasts that were helpful. Um, Elisa Childers uh, is a podcaster who um, kind of addresses current cultural and Christianity stuff, and she came out of um, prosperity gospel, NAR-related things, and yeah. Uh, is just very discerning, but also very gracious. And so she did a, a couple of videos on Asbury. She actually went and saw what was going on, and her take was was helpful. Um, uh, John Harris worldview that or conversations that matter did an interview with two pastors from the Kentucky area who were on campus several times at Asbury. That was probably the most helpful thing I listened to. Um, so if you just look on YouTube or your podcast. Uh, where you get podcasts, Conversations That Matter, John Harris. Look for the conversation about Asbury. That was very, very helpful. So. Wow. That's quite a list. Yeah. Off the top of your head. Not bad. <laughs> but I will, I should cancel the order for the tents and the, uh, Pride, uh, for yeah. the, okay. Yeah. We'll Thank do a circus you. another time. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. And it's just, uh, I just, uh, just kind of comes from some stuff I've been listening to lately, just uh, as you, teach, as you preach, your study should be feeding you and changing you. And I'm just curious, how has this study on revival fed you spiritually, yourself, personally? Um, it has tremendously encouraged me 
in the preaching of the word that results are not my category. And I knew that. Uh, and I have to return to that repeatedly. Yeah. Um, Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatsoever things are true, think on these things. So he, he anticipates that you're going to have a battle for truth in your mind. And I, I constantly have that. And we all do in whatever role we're in. And as, as you parent, as you husband to your wife, you have to think about tr- what's actually true here, right? So I have to think about that with my preaching ministry. And this uh, focus on revival has just helped me remember and rejoice in that the saving of souls is God's business. Mine is to be a faithful proclaimer and to seek to be a, a spirit-filled proclaimer. Because preaching apart from the spirit is boring, dull, and dry, frankly, right? If God's not in yes. the proclamation of his word right. by the power of his spirit, it's pointless. There's, there's nothing there. Uh, so I have learned to grow in dependence on, and I'm learning what that looks like <clears throat> for the preaching ministry and just begging God to, to use me however he sees fit to keep me humbly dependent on him to help me be faithful no matter what comes, success or opposition. Uh, so that's been helpful. This, this series has helped me in that way. Uh, this week, um, studying, I, I mentioned it this morning, I think, but studying Psalm 119 and that section where verses 59 and 60 are, so 57 to 64 is a stanza, but the psalmist gives attention to his ways. He says, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. And then he follows that up by saying, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. So he gives thought to his way, and he thinks of them in line with God's testimony, and he, he measures them up. And where he sees they're not right, he makes haste to obey. And that wrecked me. Because I, I just, am I eager to obey where I know there are things that need attention? Wow. Um, and that was so helpful for me. Uh, and that, and that, in that way, God revived my heart. He renewed my zeal to obey in, in some areas. And I, there's many more, but... And now the hard work of actually doing it, right? But yeah, yeah. to have that heart attitude was really, really helpful for me. Boy, um, that's outstanding. Yeah, it's, it's been I helpful. I felt the knife right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the impact upon my heart for our church in this series was further clarification of longing for what God's spirit could do among us and, and what that would look like and being, being patient as part of the problem <laughs> for God to, to work that way in us. Uh, I just, I'm clearer on that and I'm rejoicing in what God could do if he chose to lavish his grace on us in that way. So, uh, for instance... I see him at work in us to make us more thoughtful about the loss. And I've seen that growing slowly over the last five years. And that's awesome. Yeah. And, and I think it's about to explode. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But I long for it too. And I, and I long for God to make us not just more evangelistic, but then to use us to actually see souls saved. That would be 
tremendously glorifying to him and full of joy. So, um, One last thing is that idea of hope this morning from Psalm 85 uh, was so life-giving to me, so joy-giving to me because life is hard and and yeah, there are moments when you when you feel closer to the Lord, and and yet there's other times when it's just it just stinks, and you think you're a believer, but you're not quite sure at the moment. You know, you, we all have those like, wow. I don't know what's going on, but this is awful. <laughs> yeah, and it's just so awesome to know that the solution to that isn't in this life; it's in the one to come. And there's foreshadowings of that solution, and I should pray for those. But the end all is not that I get a better prayer life. The end all is that Christ returns and all of that goes away and sin is no more. And that's just, I can't wait. Wow. <laughs> raises your anticipation. So, Wow. Man, thank you. Thank you very much. That, you. that uh, great answers all the way around. I, um, I will not believe my press reports. Thank you. <laughs> we talked about that this morning in self-confidence. Yes, okay. Remember? Right, uh, so let's see, how do I walk that back? I can't sorry. think of any way to do that. I know what you mean. I appreciate your kindness. Thank you. Uh, being the MC, I will ask you to close <laughs> us in prayer. Okay. You, you put me in the spot, so All right. please All right. do. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for loving us so well and giving us the joy and the hope and the, the reality of life in your son. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for the work you're doing among us. Lord, we trust you that your timing and your ways are perfect. We ask that you would teach us to obey, train us by your grace, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to walk in self-controlled and upright and godly ways in this present world. Would you do your work among us and then through us, may it all be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.